So uh, today we have John Roderick with us. Uh, let me see. Band leader of the Long Winters, um, frequent podcaster. Four podcasts going right now, right, John? I have four podcasts, uh, and one of them is twice a week. So five podcasts a week. That's amazing. Uh, thanks for taking the time for this. Uh, yeah, I'll actually, I, I can't really spare this time. I've got to get going. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so when I was thinking about uh, uh, trying to talk to people about stuff they do, um, uh, well, we go through your podcast. So you do uh, oh, Roderick sure. on the Line was the first with Merlin Mann. Right. I've been doing that since, what, 2007, 2008, 9? I think, yeah, 10, maybe. But okay. yeah, a long time. Years. Eight years. And in that time, you've discussed thousands of things and pretty much your life's an open book. Um, try to. Try to. Yeah. We're coming up on 300 episodes uh, in the next couple of months. So That's like five, 600 hours of content. <laughs> yeah. Well, and without without ever knowing in advance what we're going to talk about. So... That's pretty good. You can and call then, that good or bad. Was the Dan um, Roadwork the second one you started? Yeah, Roadwork with so Dan Benjamin. Two or three years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then Friendly Fire is the recent one with um, uh, Ben and uh, Adam, right? Right, on uh, the Maximum Fun Network. Ben and uh, Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, who had a successful podcast about Star Trek. Yes, two Star Treks, I think. Yeah, uh, two. And I've listened to a lot of movie podcasts, and that's the only movie podcast where uh, other ones I kind of make sure to watch the movie before it so I can kind of enjoy it with the hosts. And you guys mm-hmm. do such a good job that it doesn't – like, I can't track down some 1952 submarine thing. And, like, <laughs> it's good enough. Like, you guys give enough context that it's, it works fine without seeing the movie. Like, it's just as good of a podcast to listen to. Well, thank you. Yeah, so it's really fun there. to do. And then uh, the Ken Jennings one, which also is awesome, and I love the um, uh, 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 Omnibus Project. Yeah, I finally, uh, you know, dragged Ken Jennings out of his hobbit hole <laughs> and forced him to join the modern media world. Uh, you know, he was still writing books. He's still, you know, sitting at a typewriter writing <laughs> writing books and sending his drafts on onion paper. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we do we do omnibus twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's an and, insane schedule. How do you? I mean, how how do you find the time? Well, you know, I have given myself a job. Right prior to this, uh, being a rock musician for uh, the you know well now twenty years, um, it's a job for sure. But it's not like a wake up in the morning and go to work yeah. job. Uh, and now I've. Just like when someone says, you know, they've been working in bars for years and they're like, I want to open my own bar. <laughs> it's like, really? You just want to give yourself a job at a bar? Because you already have a job at a bar. <laughs> they're like, no, it's going to be my place. And it's like, oh, so you went from a 30-hour-a-week job at a bar to an 80-hour-a-week job yeah. at a bar. Uh, <laughs> that breaks even, maybe. <laughs> but, yeah, right, exactly. That just gives you – now you're the one that's responsible. But uh, but I gave myself a job, but it's not really – it's hard to complain about a job that where you work two hours a day, uh, except that – Except you must do research. I mean, but they're pretty oh, complex. Uh, for Roderick on the Line and Road Work, the research no, yeah. was already done years ago. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but with Ken Jennings, right, he's a – he has a um, well, uh, like a world-famous mind. Yeah. I've, if you've ever watched his appearances on Jeopardy, it's, yeah. it's just like, what are what am I seeing? 
And so to do a podcast with him where you're doing, you're, you're talking about factual things. We don't, um, we're not talking about our feelings on that show. We're talking about rare and unusual and interesting things from, uh, history and culture. I have to be pretty on the ball, um, <laughs> both to, both to be prepared for what he's going to throw at me and also be prepared to throw back at him stuff that's going to, you know, that's also uh, requires that he be on the ball. And so it's that require that show ha- takes a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's super fun. It's the kind of stuff I love to do. It's just, it, uh, it's not the same as like rolling out of bed and, <laughs> and putting my headphones on like, good morning, here's my pod- <laughs> podcast. That's the only podcast that comes up more often than I ever think it, sh- it, it would normally. You know, once a week is pretty much the cadence of every podcast on earth. Uh, I've never listened to a daily podcast, so it's just, whoa, another omnibus? All right. Like, that's what I'm doing this afternoon when I'm on this drive. Uh, yeah, it's, it, I think it's a it's an awful lot of content, but that, that show is on, um, I just use the word content in a way that I, never, <laughs> I swore to my priests. I never would. Uh, but, but, uh, it's on the how stuff works network and they have, uh, it's, it's very much like, um, a major label record mm-hmm. company. Uh, they make you work hard and they don't pay you. Well, <laughs> that's true of everything in America today, but like my first two podcasts were basically self-released cassette tape. Uh, yeah, totally. Out of the trunk. You know, yeah. With a, and then, then we made 45s and then a friendly fire is, is very much like an indie label. Yeah, totally. Max fun. But how stuff works, you know, they, they've got big offices, they're serious business and, mm-hmm. um, and they wanted it twice a week. So we were like, sure, man. What, you, else, what else you got? Do you do an eight-hour day and you record a dozen or something? No, Ken, act, uh, it's astonishing to me still because when we were talking about setting it up, I was like, well, Ken, I'll come over to your house. I'll build a little studio there for you and and uh, teach you how to like, um, you know. Re- record just, your end. Yeah, record your end. Just the basic stuff. And, 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 um, and Ken was like, what? No, I don't want to do it alone in my house i'm gonna come over to your house whoa that's weird doesn't I was he like, know podcasting <laughs> is never face to face i know i was like what no i don't want you coming over to my house and he was like no definitely i'm gonna come over to your house <laughs> podcasting is made by lonely people staring at a wall for lonely people staring at walls to listen to there's I no tried to eye contact to well and he's a like a introverted nerd just yeah. like i am he doesn't want to but he's like so every week he gets in his car and he drives all the way across town which already is like wow why would you do that for any reason uh and then i built a studio in my house for two people and he comes and we sit across the table from each other and look at each other and uh it's great you know it's you see someone else's face you're i'm actually talking to him you know we look at each other while we podcast if one of us for any reason looks down at their computer or their book for like more than about 10 seconds, the other one's like, what, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know, so, so it's great. It's a completely different experience. You know, like I've only ever done, uh, I guess I've done one episode of Roderick on the line with Merlin where we were in the same room and then like four live shows mm-hmm. But Dan Benjamin, I've only met once in person, <laughs> and it was at XOXO, 
in Portland like a long time before we started doing a show together. So I don't like I mean, I, I follow down on Instagram. I know what he looks like. <laughs> but Oh, yeah. I probably talked to Dan for 10 years before I met him face to face, I think, in Austin one year. So so it's it's uh, it's a strange it's and, you know, and I've got a I've got a big I've got a big table with with uh, professional looking white chairs and microphones on boom stands like I really did it up. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about any of that today. Uh, right. This podcast is usually for, uh, you know, um, side projects and side gigs, but you've put out thousands of hours of your entire life and uh, I was struggling to think of something you haven't talked about much. And I think you've, I feel like you've barely touched on Alaska in places. Um, you know, you've given us a few, I don't know, silly backstories on things you did when you were 18 or something. But um, I was thinking from a, from a, a purely selfish point of view that I've always wanted to visit. Um, you're the most famous Alaskan I know who could probably tell me like when to go, what to do, what to see, uh, what's the layout and why, um, the place is what it is. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, I just want to talk about Alaska today, which isn't really your hobby, but, um, I think it's like a less explored, uh, aspect of your, uh, personality or, or, or previous podcast at least. So, so yeah, let's talk about Alaska. Does that sound good to you? It does. Yeah. You live in Portland. So the most famous Alaskans, you know, are probably the guys in Portugal, the man now. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. They're all, they're the, they're super famous now. They just played the Portland, the, um, the March that was like a month ago. Yeah. They like did a free concert in the middle of town. That was pretty rad. They're rad dudes. And they're from Alaska. They are. They're, um, you know, they're quite a bit younger than I am, but, but, um, but still, you know, we were contemporaneous there. They're from what we used to call, well, I guess they still call it like out in the valley, um, which is the Matanuska Susitna Valley, which is where Sarah Palin hailed from. Uh, when I was growing up, it was very rural. It was just farms, cows. Um, now it's become a a bedroom community for Anchorage and a giant sort of sprawling suburban exo exopolis. So like when I think of Alaska, it's the big blob and it's got the long thing hanging out to Alaska and the really long thing going almost all the way down to Washington, like going really far. Anchorage is pretty far down that, right? Or is it kind of in the lower corner of the big blob? So if you look at the if you look at the largest landmass of Alaska and you've got what what's called the Panhandle which goes down across the front face of the Yukon Territories and British Columbia uh which would be going to the east and that so that's the Panhandle and then if you the um the archipelago of islands headed out to the far west that reaches down all the way to um I mean very it's basically almost is picked up by the northern islands of Japan. Almost, yeah, I mean, wow. it's just like goes all the way across the, the Pacific. Uh, Anchorage is right, basically right in the center at the bottom of the large landmass. So, so it's it's oh, very yeah. it's very central, but on the on the water at the bottom. And it is like six o'clock. I mean, it is dead center kind of bottom mm-hmm. of the, the thing. And so yep. does everyone live within like, you know, 20 miles of the coast pretty much? Well, I mean, 
in Alaska, which is a which is very sparsely populated, um, when I was growing up, there were five hundred thousand people in the in the state. Jesus, and there were two hundred and fifty thousand people in Anchorage. <laughs> and why is the capital city Juneau instead of Anchorage? What's the deal with that? Well, it was like. Um, it's like an Albany, New York City thing. It's kind of there was a there was a movement for a long time when I was growing up, uh, trying to move the capital of Anchorage to a kind of uh, what 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 then and now is just a big nowhere, yeah. uh, but at least in the middle of the state, um, mm-hmm. they wanted to move it um, the capital to a place called Willow, and they were going to build almost like a Brasilia. They were just going to take. <laughs> They were going to chop down a bunch of trees and build a new capital. Um, the fact that it's in Juneau, you know, there are no roads to Juneau. Yeah, there's yeah, there's no way. So you can get to Juneau by boat or by plane. But Juneau is also like regularly uh, socked in with like the most incredible fog you ever saw. So uh, until... Uh, until like radar technology and, and airplane technology got to the point where you could land a plane in any kind of soup. Uh, when I was a kid, there was all kinds of times you could just, you couldn't go to Juneau. It was, uh, it was so fogged in that you just had to wait, uh, until, until the weather cleared. Does the state run like Oregon where they only have like the state Congress in session, like two months out of two years, like they put it off for a summer, you know, like like it's really weird in Oregon. It's only sporadically that you have to do government work. Like everyone has a day job. Uh, no, Alaska is extremely government oriented and it's, it it seems it's um it's funny because politically it Alaska seems rugged individuals but <laughs> well, it, you it guys is. have you guys have had UBI for forty years or something. <laughs> Juno is I mean we're Alaska is super and when I say we I mean I haven't lived in Alaska in many 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 years, but I still very much identify with it as a place and my uncle and cousin still live there and he's so engaged so involved in Alaska and. And Alaska is one of the few places where, where you could just say that sentence, right? He's not just involved in Alaskan politics or Alaskan culture or, you know, he's just really involved in Alaska. And any, anybody up there that you said that to would know exactly what that meant. And it, and it, it is what it sounds like. You're just, you identify so much with the state and, and you just become a kind of, um, like the whole state and all the, all the people that live there are just one sort of organism separate and apart from the rest of the world. But so Juno, uh, so the Alaska's relationship to government is really, uh, is really kind of crazy and tangled. And first of all, it's only been a state since 59. And prior to that, the federal government just owned everything, just owned the whole oh, yeah. state. Right. So, um, and it was, and it was kind of like a military outpost or something. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a military outpost until it was a it was it was um, the military played a big role there, and particularly at the beginning of the Cold War, it was like, wow, we have a base that's just right over next to Russia. But also, it was a huge, you know, it was a uh, enormous like the the salmon pack, the the fishing and the crabbing. Oh yeah, uh, was a huge part of Alaska's 
uh, economy and, you know, gold mining, copper mining, coal mining. Has it been supplying oil for a long time or is that more recent? Well, so the oil stuff started in the in the 50s. And, oh, okay. and initially it was kind of like it was kind of like oil in Ohio. Um <laughs> Ohio was originally, you know, standard oil of Ohio. So Ohio is, and, and so Ohio was like the big oil state before Texas and Oklahoma, uh, before they discovered oil down there. And now we don't think of Ohio as an oil state really. Uh, in the forties and fifties, they were, they were looking for oil down around Anchorage, down around the, the Seward Peninsula. And they found it offshore and it was, you know, it was exciting, these uh, discoveries. My uncle Jack actually uh, published a little five-page newspaper about oil exploration in the 50s. Uh, he was like a, it was like a scouting newspaper. <laughs> and during that time, he actually bought or he staked some claims, some oil claims down um, around Soldatna. And one of them came in. One of them was bought by a, by a, a one of the big oil companies and it provides him a residual to this day. Wow. He didn't like, he didn't like hit a gusher or anything and become like a oil baron. He just had, you know, his, his property got gobbled in or his, his claim got gobbled up and, and, uh, and yeah, he still gets, you know, he gets oil money. A friend in Texas has to pay taxes on like $32 a year because he owns one four hundredth of an acre that is, you know, from the 1800s that became uh-huh. an oil field. So uh-huh. he gets, see, it's a report from, you know, a big standard oil or something every year saying you owe eight bucks on 30 bucks. <laughs> and and I, I think Uncle Jack has done, did better than that. But the, <laughs> but the tra- not tragedy, the, the story, I guess, is that then the oil companies realized, oh, wow, there's this huge country and um, it has like an incredib- incredibly long coastline, like the coastline of Alaska with all of its little uh, inlets is. Um, yeah, it's insane. It's like there's almost the, uh, the length of the American coastline. And um, so the oil companies just poured in and they made this what turned out to be an incredible oil discovery in Prudhoe Bay up on the very, very north oh, right. peak of Alaska, the topmost top place. That's the end of the highway, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, and they went through this whole process where the state, it, there was no precedent exactly. It wasn't clear. Uh, Alaska was a brand new state. It wasn't clear how, how they were going to hand out those leases, um, how they were going to hand out those claims. And there was a lot of deliberation if they just, if it was just by lottery, if you just put your name into a hat and they pulled it out and they were like, okay, you get this lease and you get that lease, um, random people, just random people who put their names in this hat could pull that ticket out and be billionaires. Um, and then there was another suggestion that we sell the leases to the highest bidder or, um, and 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 then I think most intriguingly, uh, the suggestion like they do in Scandinavia, where the government doesn't hand out the rights, the government retains the rights to all the oil, and and then gives the oil companies contracts to to drill and and pump and 
And that's, is that the source of the annual like citizen payback thing? So in, in Anchorage, we did end up auctioning the leases off to the oil companies and they pay a tax to the state, which has created what's called the permanent fund, which is this enormous pile of money. And from that, and there are rules about how that money gets used. And so at a certain point, they started giving permanent fund checks to every person in the state. In 1980, I think was the first year, and I was 11 years old, and I got a check for a thousand dollars. Wow! And you know what? 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 Ten-year-old has ever seen a thousand dollars? I wouldn't even wrap my head around that number at ten. And so, for the next, well, for as long as I lived in Alaska, I got that permanent fund check, and I was a frugal kid, so I didn't spend my permanent fund. And some kids' parents, I thought really unfairly, their parents just took their permanent fund money mm-hmm. because it was like, well. Well, I raised you. <laughs> yeah, we're paying room and board for you. God. But my folks were like not dishonest. And so <laughs> they said, no, that's your money. You can't just go buy candy bars. They had to like restrain my sister from buying $1,000 worth of Reese's Pieces. <laughs> but I saved my money. And so when I graduated from college, I had... Good Lord. Um, which I, which I used subsequently, uh, to pay for my travel around the, around America and around Europe. That's amazing. So I was, you know, is it up to three or four grand a year now? Something like that. At a certain point, the state of Alaska sent me a letter and they said, you have not been living in Alaska for long enough that we are no longer going to give you a permanent fund check. And I was so bummed. It was like, it was like they took my, the stripes off of my uniform. <laughs> I was like, no, come on. I still carry my Alaska driver's license. I, you know, and they're just like, nope, sorry, you've lost it. You have to move back here and live here for whatever their requirement is, a year or two uh, before you're back on the rolls. So I don't know what they get now. And I don't oh, want- my God. I've got Wikipedia has this breakdown of year by year. Sometimes it's 300 bucks. Sometimes it's almost 2000 over 2000 it looks like it's back down to 1600 a year that's pathetic yeah but and it was in the 80s there were there were moments when it when it dipped down and it felt like $600 oh no we're running yeah. out of money but it's just that it's the it's Based just the ups the and downs uh so looking at a map of Alaska reminds me that uh my wife has done like fishing trips to the Kenai Peninsula mm. Kenai from Anchorage looks like as the crow flies 40 60 miles maybe and she talks about it being like a four to six hour drive that like that's how nuts the coast coastline is basically well yeah it's not um there's no direct route yeah um and there's a wonderful railroad that goes from anchorage to kenai uh that my dad uh was the chief counsel of uh during the 1970s um and that route if you are going on a trip to uh to alaska and you want to take the the anchorage to seward railroad i highly recommend it oh that sounds good and you'll see if you if you're looking on the map closely as you leave anchorage headed to the southeast there's a little town called girdwood which is about 40 miles south uh southeast of anchorage and that is the little ski resort, little ski mountain where um, 
that has produced a half a dozen Olympic, Olympic, <clears throat> excuse me, Olympic skiers, Olympians, uh, and that's where my sister and I kind of grew up skiing. Is that like the was it Ala, uh, Alieska? Alieska, right? Yeah, that's the mountain range where all the snowboarders come from too. Yeah, Alieska is a wonderful resort. It's um, it's it's small by comparison to like Utah or Colorado ski mountains, but it's um, the skiing starts basically at sea level, so it's thirty five hundred foot mountain, but you can ski all the way down to the base is just basically right there. <laughs> um. So it doesn't, you know, a lot of those uh, Colorado mountains, the base of the mountain is yeah, 8,000 yeah, 8, feet, right? Um, so if I was going to, if anyone listening was going to go to Alaska, when's the best time of year to go? Because I've heard, you know, one, it's great for, well, there's snow and then there's no snow and then there, it's great. And then there's bugs and there's bugs, more bugs than you've ever could ever imagine. So like, when's the best time of year? There are gnarly, gnarly bugs for sure. Yeah. Is that later summer? It's late summer, yeah. And there there are not gnarly bugs like you would find. There aren't bugs like big bugs. Just lots, right? Just just mosquitoes, just swarms Ugh. of mosquitoes and, and gnats and black flies. <laughs> but it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, it, ca- it can be bad. I would not recommend going out into the bush like north of Fairbanks, 100 miles without a T-shirt on in <laughs> August yeah. uh, because they'll bleed you dry. But but Anchorage has done a pretty good job of mosquito control over the years, and and um, they're no more irritating in, in Anchorage or even if there's a, a light wind. They're no more irritating than they are anywhere. Oh, okay. Um, there are great times to be in Alaska, and there are and there are sad times to be there. Um Starting really soon now. So we're we're recording this show at the end of April. And this is the beginning of – it's the end of one of the worst times and the beginning of one of the best times. Um, as, the, as the weather warms up, it's called uh, – at, at the end of the winter, it's called breakup. And that's when a year's worth of snow and ice all just gradually sort of decays – and slowly turns to mud and every cigarette butt that everybody threw out into the snow for seven months, they all reappear as the, as the mud water just sort of, it's just like all the garbage and, and so all of kind of April, although you're really excited, March and April, you're really excited to see the sun and, and it's warming up and, oh, you're liberated but there's just a period there where it's super gross. It's hard to get around. And if you're unlucky enough that halfway through breakup, it freezes again, then you're just, you're just, you're dealing with like cities of black ice, like just towers of garbage. It's terrible. But then there comes a day when all of a sudden it's all gone. The snow is all gone and it's, it goes pretty quickly from being dark a lot to being light a lot. And by June 21st in Anchorage, it's, um, the sun is up. I mean, it feels like it's up 20 hours a day when the sun goes down. It just kind of drops down the, the day turns to twilight 
There's a little period where it's kind of purple. The sky is kind of dark purple. And then it starts to brighten up again and the sun starts to come back up. It never gets completely dark. Midnight to four, maybe? Yeah. 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 And well, and there was, I mean, when I was growing up, there was a baseball, um, a baseball league where the game started at midnight. Um, so, so, you know, right about May, it becomes an incredible place to be. And in May and June, you're there before the big tourist influx. You're there before the mosquitoes come out. You're there before, you know, the town is just kind of getting ready for the summer. Um, all of a sudden there are flowers everywhere and people put flower boxes out on their windows and, and, um, it's a real celebration of life beginning anew. So, uh, so May and June are wonderful. Uh, and even as far as like middle of July, I would say. I've never considered, uh, you know, that's a big thing in Scandinavia. They have festivals and celebrations and they apparently do good marketing about it. Cause I know when they first get summer, they're so happy about it. And I've never, I assume, you know, you're at the, pretty much the same uh, latitudes that you would have this sort of thing, but like I've never heard of a vocabulary around it of just, you know, celebrating summer or spring. And yeah, it's, it's really, and you really feel it internally. I mean, Anchorage and Stockholm are at almost exactly the same latitude. Yeah. Um, but, but the feeling of liberation, I mean, I, I, I went to school in Seattle as a kid and also in Anchorage. So I went to kindergarten through fourth grade in Seattle and then moved to Anchorage and went through fifth grade from fifth grade to the end of high school there. And at the, you know, as spring is coming along and you're sitting in class and you're waiting for the bell to ring and you're waiting for summer to come in Seattle. And I think in a lot of places, like you feel this, oh my God, I can't wait for school to be out. I can't wait to get out into the world. But in Alaska, it goes along with this feeling of like school is almost over and also the world has returned. Like there's grass and there are birds and, and, um, the sun is in the sky so that, so that by the time the last day of school comes, you're, you're like being fired out of a cannon, uh, back into the world. And I think it's true for grownups too. Um, the, uh, the, it's just rebirth every year. Does Alaska do the Chicago thing where like taking half a Friday off is completely normal for even business people because they're so stoked to be out of the winter oh well or does everyone just have a summer home and i guess just phones it in all summer probably alaska is i mean the joke in anchorage has always been that anchorage is only a half an hour away from alaska (laughs) because anchorage is a western town that was built i mean the oldest building in anchorage is from 1924 and during World War II, a lot of things got built in Alaska, and Anchorage was one of them. And it's called Anchorage. It's like it, it's a place where the boat can come in. It's not a very good port. Uh, it's kind of a sandy, kind of a, actually. Let's just be honest. It's kind of a shitty port. Um, the 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 good ports in in southern Alaska are, are Whittier, which used to be accessible. Well, still is only accessible to the rest of Alaska through a long tunnel. Uh, oh, Seward right. is a good port. Anchorage is not not that just you know kind of like a little bit of a river bottom, but uh, but they built 
a couple of big military bases there. Elmendorf Air Force Base and Fort Richardson Army Base are both essentially built right in in the city. And so this town went from nothing, like a stop on the railroad, to to the biggest city in the state. And um, and and it feels like a town, you know, not not a not a city like Chicago. It's it's it feels like um, it feels like Edmonton, Canada, except smaller. Um, but if you are interested in getting out of Anchorage, all you have to do is point your car in one of two directions because you can only get out north or south. And then you're immediately like in a place where all you have to, I mean, you can just pull over to the side of the road and start, start walking and you'll be somewhere where there's nobody in not very long. Um, wilderness is just all around and, and, and gnarly wilderness. Like you could walk into the mountains right out, right, right to the west of Anchorage or right to the east of Anchorage, walk up there and just like be lost forever. They never find your body. So, so there isn't like in Chicago, I imagine on Friday afternoon or half, half day on Friday, like everybody's got to get out of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. But in Alaska, like you're already in, you're already out of Anchorage. It doesn't take long. Right. (laughs) And people there are so outdoor oriented. It's a big part of, it's a big part of the culture. And it's one of the reasons I didn't stay in Alaska. I, I had, um, I had ambition to be a, a member of like the uh, of a larger culture of writers, I guess, um, or people that were uh, people that were experiencing a kind of indoor world or an inner life. And uh, Alaska is a place that really, really has. There's so much opportunity for adventure that a lot of people living there get into lives of pure adventure where if they're not otherwise engaged, they are hella skiing or snowmobile racing or, you know, there's a sport up there called ski joring where you tie your dogs around your weight. You tie a rope around your waist, hook it up to your dogs, put cross country skis on and let your dogs pull you into the forest. (laughs) I mean, it's just that kind of life. And if you love that kind of life, that just like outside, just going, 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 it's great. If you don't love that kind of life, it can be a little isolating up there because that's what everyone else is doing. So you didn't see yourself as a wild bush pilot that owns a snowmobile dealership someday? You wanted to sit inside and write and make music and stuff? Yeah, even though I think by... Uh, and a lot of my stories are about that kind of thing. And, and by comparison to your normal American person, I've done a lot of, of that kind of crazy stuff. Um, growing up, that's just, you know, what you do. Like you, on the weekends, you don't go play video games. Although I'm sure there are plenty of people up there that play video games, but you also, you have the opportunity to go see if you can jump your truck higher than your friend's dad's truck. Uh, and, and it's, it's like rural places everywhere, except the, except the, first of all, the, um, the barrier to entry is so low. You can just go crazy and, and, uh, and you have access to, you have access to places where 
nobody's watching you. And then also the standard of like of adventure is so high that if you if you want to make any kind of impact at all, you have to go big. You have to just 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 start out just going as big as you can. I can't believe YouTube hasn't opened a, a studio outpost. <laughs> like this would be hmm. the greatest uh, filming location in the world for you know every dumb weekend video. Well, it is. I mean, if you go on YouTube and try and look up. <laughs> things in Alaska. And I have a lot of friends that like, for instance, my dad was a small plane pilot. He learned to fly in the Navy and his idea of a great time, just a great time was to, he and I would bundle ourselves down to Merrill field, which was about a mile from his house. And it's the busiest small plane airport in the world. (laughs) And we, and it's just, you know, it's right in the center of Anchorage and we'd fire up the old, 172 and the two of us would plop in and he'd get in there with, and I'd have the maps out and he'd have his sunglasses up on his head and we'd burn off the strip and just fly out into Alaska somewhere, buzz around, go find some little town that had a hamburger joint that he'd heard of. And when I say a little town, I mean like one street that has businesses that has like houses on either side. The street is dirt and there's an airfield there, and we would land and walk down the street, and the dogs would chase us, and little kids would come out, and we'd go into the one little restaurant that had a ceiling that was six foot two, <laughs> uh, and we'd get a hamburger, and then we'd fly home. And that was my dad's, you know, just a perfect day for him. And for me, it was like, God, that's a lot of work for a hamburger. <laughs> You know, like we could just get a hamburger anywhere, dad. And it's partly it's being a teenager and, and, uh, and just thinking like whatever your parents want to do is dumb. The flight wasn't exciting. Like I remember uh, a neighbor had a Cessna and just like taking photographs from that level was a view I'd never seen in my life. The only, you know, whatever it is, 2000 to 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. I've, I've only seen it at six feet and 40,000. Like mm-hmm. I was fascinated by seeing Southern California at like 2000 feet. It's remarkable looking. It's wonderful. But it, you know, it's how I grew up. Like when I went away to college, <clears throat> my dad, I mean, what we did was we took the stuff I was taking to college and we stuffed it in the back of the 172 <laughs> and we flew down through Canada to, uh, to Spokane and so like me going to college was a four day long road trip, except, <laughs> it, except we were 2,500 feet above the road. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but, but what it is, is it's, um, it's a kind of thing. I mean, you'll see it here in California too. You're driving out on the highway and it's a Saturday and a big truck will go by. And in the back of the truck, there's like three, uh, like motocross bikes and then behind that, they're pulling a trailer and there's two jet skis on the trailer. <laughs> yeah. And you look at them and you're like, yeah, those guys are going out to have some fun, you know. But but the amount of like just time and effort it takes to put all that shit in the truck and drive it out there and unload it and get it in the water and gas it up. And like it's so much motorhead baloney. That for me, as somebody who's like kind of it's I'm easy to entertain, right? You could just sit and I mean, I could just sit and throw cards into a hat and be just <laughs> as entertained as I am on a jet ski. 
it seems like a lot, an extra awful lot of, of time and energy. And I guess it's because it's that, that spirit of like, I want to jump my truck higher than my, my best friend's dad's truck. It's just sort of, it's only in me halfway. Um, I'm not that compelled, propelled to go get rad all the time. I will get rad if you're, if we're all standing around, it's like, who's going to jump first. I'll be like, I'll jump first. Uh, but partly just to get it over with. (laughs) But, um, but like, do I want to maintain three motocross bikes? (laughs) And my dad did. He loved to go out and tinker on that airplane. He loved to, you know, and I mean, I have friends up there who are, you know, my age and who grew up in Alaska and they just, they, fell immediately into the lives that their fathers had and then took it up a notch. So like they've got a really cool plane on skis and on floats in the summer and they take their own kids up and drop them off on the top of a mountain and then meet them at the bottom and fly them back up to the top all weekend just because they, you know, they love their, that their kids are getting to ski this fresh powder, but also they love to be, they love to just be in their airplane, flying them up and down. And it's like, wow, you know what I did on Saturday? Like we did some watercolors, <laughs> walked around the, rocked around the neighborhood. It's just a, it's a different tempo, I guess is what I'm saying. So Mayor June is going to be ideal and get a jump on tourism. What, what kind Fourth of July is amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like oh, if yeah. you can be in Anchorage at Fourth of July, you're, you're, you're in heaven. But I imagine uh, with a cruise ships kind of dump people out in July and August. That must be just nonstop. So the cruise ships do uh, do change stuff, and and the cruise ships stay down in the southern panhandle there, uh, but they have started to come to Anchorage, and they're just tour. I mean, it's not just the ships; it's like tourists, 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 tourists. So, what's uh, there to do around? Uh, if you have a week to kill, what kind of things should you look at doing? Like, is there anything? Is going inland worth it? Like, is there anything to see at Denali or anything? Oh, or yeah. Is everything sort of coastal? Because I'm I'm used to people that just like to fish, and that's all they ever want to do. So, <clears throat> you know, Denali is the largest, the tallest mountain in the northern hemisphere. Nor, in the <laughs> well, North no, America, no, not, North America. That's right, not northern hemisphere. The the tallest mountain in North America, but it's also the largest mountain in the world from bottom to top. Wow. So again, the base of Mount Everest is 15,000 feet or something. And the base of Denali is, is really, really low. So this, uh, the, the, um, the sheer just epic size of it. And I mean, the largest mountain that's not, the mountain of the island of Hawaii. If you took all the water out of the ocean, it would be, you know, much bigger. But, um, so, so it is an enormous mountain. Um, when you stand even hundred miles away, the mountain fills your entire periphery. You cannot, if you're looking at it, you cannot see to, to either side, anything that isn't still that mountain. Is it overwhelming and awesome? It is overwhelming and awesome. That's on great. A, on a summer day or on a winter day, uh, when it's clear and you're looking at that mountain, you cannot fathom it. 
Like, uh, the only thing that stands up to that for me in my entire life is probably the Grand Canyon, where it's got a lot of buildups. The Grand Canyon, the biggest hole on Earth, and it's going to be great. And you show up, and there's it's no joke. It is fucking great. <laughs> like, it it's is phenomenal. overwhelming. It's the entire horizon. It's your entire periphery. You cannot believe how big it is, and it's fucking awesome. Like, I tell people all the time, no matter how much you've read about it or how much has been built up, it's going to be better than that. Yeah, it really is. It really, and Grand Canyon is a thing where you can just sit and stare at it and the whole day goes by and you're like, whoa, I'm still staring at this thing. Your mind just never fills up um, or it's overflowing or whatever it is. Like it, it, it's endless. And, and this mountain is the same way. And, and that's a hundred miles away from it. As you get closer and closer to it, you you feel like I mean, I, there, my dad and I were flying with a with a, a pretty famous bush pilot by the name of Cliff Hudson, one time kind of flying up toward the mountain, and as we got closer and closer to the mountain, you know, there came it it just it fills up the sky, and at a certain point, my dad was like, um, "Don't you think we're getting a little close to the mountain? Like, shouldn't we like turn?" turn away because it seems like we're going to crash into the mountain and cliff hudson said we're 40 miles from the mountain <laughs> <laughs> and it's that kind of thing where you're just like uh you're kind of your heart is up in your chest like we're gonna we're gonna we're about to crash into this thing it's like no we're, we gotta fly for another hour so is that just a couple hours north to probably lookouts or something to see it? yeah and denali national park is uh, the, the park that encompasses it. And again, the mountain is big, not just long and wide, but it's like, it's enormous in all directions. Denali park is the size of Rhode Island. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so like the, the, the state. So within Denali park, it's an, it's a completely un. it's basically like, um, they limit how much they limit the, the number of people that can go in and how invasive they can be. So if you go tool around Denali Park in one of the the little sort of buses that will drive you around, you just see giant brown bear on the hoof just wandering around. And it's not like one of those things where they come over to the bus and you feed them peanuts out the windows. Like these are these are alpha predators that are just free and they don't care about you. And that alone is like, uh, it's pretty amazing to see. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because, uh, Southern California and, uh, well, I guess Yosemite as a kid, I sort of experienced sort of Disneyland versions of bears. Um, you know, they were close to human contact. They're just going through garbage. They seemed slightly tamed. I mean, now everyone kind of keeps their distance, but, they don't seem like a menace. And when last time I was in uh, Glacier National Park, I mean, bears were killing hikers and they told us to cover ourselves and spray and have bells on everything. And these things are terrifying, dangerous predators. So I wondered how bad are Alaska bears if, uh, I mean, there's something you just look at from a bus and take a photo or is something to be terrified of? Uh, Alaska bears are a lot bigger, first of all. Like the, I'm talking about, well, the black bears are bigger but the grizzly bears are enormous and they are not like in California, there are no more brown bears. There are some brown bears in the continental U S in, in 
Montana and, and, um, but not very many. And in Alaska there, they are running the show up there and, uh, yeah, they are, uh, they're horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Are people appropriately terrified? Cause Montana like tries to put terror in you just all the time, which is appropriate. I think growing up up there, I, I didn't realize this until I came down and lived in America for a while and then went back. But up there, there are a lot of things that we all just intuitively know. And and they, they it's not just that you're taught it from a young age. It's that you understand where you are. It's like, like I was saying about my uncle Jack, that he is just like completely invested in Alaska. And if you are invested in it, you have a relationship with nature that's very different than it is down here. There is no hubris there about nature. And down here, it's it's 100% hubris. Like we've just, we've paved the roads, we've built the things. And if you go somewhere, unless you are somebody who's like a backcountry person here, for the most part um, in the U.S., like if you leave, if you leave Los Angeles and you drive to uh, Palm Springs, you are just full of hubris <laughs> the entire way. You're just like, oh yeah, here we go. You know, we'll be there in an hour. Wait, what do you mean there's no gas station? Well, you know, I got to go to the bathroom. Where's the nearest? <laughs> and we forget that if you walked from LA to Palm Springs, there are 25 different opportunities for you to die. <laughs> but we just don't think that way. Um, in Alaska, everyone is conscious of that all the time. Because in the winter, especially, if your car runs out of gas or conks out and no one comes along, you, you could die. People do all the time. And in the summer, if you go off, you know, if you pull over to the side of the road and run off into the forest to go pee, um, you might, you know, your friends might be like, where'd he go? And go look for you and never find you because you just fell in a hole uh, because nature is completely untamed, untamable, and running the show there. Yeah, I'd say we've conquered nature. Everything is conquering. You kick that mountain's ass down here. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to know people are like, no, we're all going to die up there. (laughs) So like every year, uh, when I was growing up, a grizzly or two would follow the train tracks into Anchorage, forget where they were, and suddenly pop out in the center of town and everybody goes, Oh shit. Because there's a enormous bear just rumbling down the street and a grizzly bear at a, at like a half of a run can clear a chain link fence without it slowing him down at all. They just are, they're just going along and you're like, Oh, here he comes. He's got, he's got to deal with that fence. And before you can even say, it's just like over the fence and just keeps going. And so the bear is not uh, inhibited. And once the bear's in the town and realizes it's in the town, the bear gets a real like, oh, fuck attitude. Like, where am I? This is not cool all of a sudden. So the bear is agitated and trying to find its way out of town. And Anchorage is a city, right? People are going to work. They're in their coats and ties. And so the the fish and wildlife people and the local, you know, animal people are, <clears throat> they get in their trucks and they're kind of like 
trying to herd the bear, but you can't really herd it. It's going to do what it's going to do. And they're not going to shoot it because for a lot of reasons, unless the bear is like on its way, they're watching it. If the bear like goes to kill somebody, they will shoot it, but that's not, that's not their plan. They want everybody out of the way and they want to get the bear out of there. So they're like firing flares and honking their horns and they're trying to make sure everybody knows. And, you know, the word goes out, like, get inside. And one year the bear uh, went through my neighborhood and uh, we're inside and looking out the window and here comes this like bear that's the size of a Volkswagen bug. You know, they're like, they're just crazy big and he's just, he's taking his time. He's not running. They're not, a, they're not like in panic because in their minds, there's nothing that can hurt them. They're the, they're alpha thing, but they just don't like it. They don't like what's going on. And eventually, generally the, the, the wildlife people like get them out, get them out of town. But on the edge of town, there are bears constantly just coming down into the yard, turning over the trash can, <laughs> eat the cat. Like there, it's a constant presence and I've met bear on the trail, you know, four times, I guess in my life. Um, and they don't want to hang out, you know, and you do the thing where you're ringing bells and you're saying ho bear as loud as you can. And, and the only reason I met those four bear is a couple of times I've got lost in thought and stopped making noise, came around the corner and there was a bear. And the bear went away as fast as it could. And um, once or twice, the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. So the bear couldn't hear or smell me in advance. But always at a distance, you know, never like come around the corner. And I'm facing a bear. The problem is that a lot of uh, like the, the, the bear, a bear's skull is so thick that you can fire a 357 Magnum right in its face and the bullet will ricochet off the bear's skull and the bear will still kill you. <laughs> so there are, it's not a simple matter of just like, I've got a gun. Um, the bear's cannon. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, and bear spray too was very popular for a while when I was growing up and I think it still is. But I mean, if a bear is attacking you, you spray bear spray <laughs> in its face. It's just like, come on. <laughs> but if you want to see bear, so that's another thing to do in the summer. And there are a couple of ways to do it. So on the, on the Kenai Peninsula, the Kenai River is this right. big, big fishing scene. And the people there are like they're lined up side by side on this river on both sides fishing. And the bear are also there fishing. So there's all kinds of stories about – and you'll see pictures of like 50 fishermen all with their lines in the river and then like a bear <laughs> – and they kind of just leave each other alone. You do see stories where a, like it'll be dusk and there'll be one last fisherman who's like, okay, you guys, I'll be right there. Casts his line one extra time and then turns around and he's face to face with a bear and gets the shit uh, kicked out of him. But if you fly down, there's a, there's a thing. Um, so the Kodiak brown bear is an, uh, is another dimension larger even than the typical grizzly bear. And that's on Kodiak Island? On Kodiak Island. Holy crap, that's isolated. And there are, there, so you can fly to Kodiak from Anchorage, you know, pretty cheaply. 
And there are, um, there are places that will facilitate, I guess, bear watching where you fly to Kodiak and they put you up. It's a, in a lodge and it's a nice time. You know, they, they do dinner for you and everything. And then you just kind of go out and the bears are so focused on the fish on, on, on grabbing these giant salmon out of the rivers that you can kind of just stand there with your, with your people and the bears are just right there, but they, they don't care. Like your, your, your meat tastes bad compared to a salmon. As long as you don't monkey with them, uh, you can just watch them. And if you look on, if you look at videos online of like the bears of Kodiak Island, you'll see, you'll see YouTube videos. And I think there's even a 24 hour stream, a uh, camp cameras, uh, that are just focused on a couple of different places on the river. And you can just sit and watch bears from your house. Um, oh, I've, I've done the webcam. Where's cat my cat? Oh, the my? cat my, yeah. That's where the like bear cam is. Oh, it's right yeah. off. It's the land. Like next to Kodiak Island. Yeah. Katmai is on the, uh, the opposite side of the channel there. So yeah, like maybe the high long days of June, you can load the bear cam and just watch them. You know, they seem so lazy. Um, cause they they're, are. Just, they're just waiting for the salmon to basically accidentally pop into their mouth. They just kind of yep. sit there with their mouths open, but <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just fat, lazy, fun loving. <laughs> they're so cute. And they do, they sit there and like, if a salmon doesn't, actually just jump in their mouth. They can't be bothered to turn their heads. Yeah. Um, but you know, all you have to do is like see one like in full <laughs> aggressive charge and you realize that they are not funny. <laughs> They're not at all funny. <laughs> they do but not that, want forage. That's a, that's a once in a lifetime thing to go out there and actually visit and watch those bears up close. Uh, and it's not hard, you know, it's not, it's just, it just costs money, you know? So it's, where's all the glacier viewing stuff? Is that down on the panhandle part or is that farther inland? So if you, if you want to see the glaciers that like cleave off into the ocean, to the water and big, yeah. uh, big waves and so forth, that's down. That would be a cruise that you would take from Seattle up to Valdez or, you know, up to Skagway and you go past all these, these you know, big glaciers that are just pouring down into the, into the water and there's whales and it's a completely separate experience of Alaska. That's very inaccessible. It's almost completely inaccessible from the land side. You have to get to it from the water. Right. Uh, if you drive out of Anchorage on your way up to where Portugal, the man lives a little bit past, uh, Sarah Palin's house, Oh yeah, Glacier View is a city. That must be it. <laughs> there is, but also there's a place called the Knick Glacier, K N I K, and you can just walk right up to the glacier and walk under the glacier. Oh wow! Um, with the creepy blue ice and everything. With the creepy blue ice, and you can walk around on the glacier uh, to your heart's content. Uh, also down, if you take if you go through the tunnel down to Whittier, it's it's a, it's a very doable but still slightly grueling hike up over the over the pass over to Portage Glacier. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, Portage Glacier was uh, it came down all the way 
three quarters of the way across Portage Lake and you could basically drive there. And, and the glacier was what had all the, it was sort of calving these, these icebergs. And, um, just since I was a teenager, the glacier has retreated completely off the lake and around the corner up the valley so that you can no longer even see it from where we used to sit and drink beer and, and (laughs) throw the cans at the glacier. (laughs) So, uh, climate change uh, of all the places I know, Alaskans are the most hyper aware of it because you can just see it right in front of your eyes. Like this, this glacier within a generation. Yeah. This glacier is not retreating naturally. It's gone and you can still hike up to it and hike over and, 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 um, and, uh, I, I took my girlfriend there last year, I think. And we hiked up and she had her first like glacier ice right off the glacier, which is a, which is a delicious thing. Tastes like ice, old, old, old ice. But, but trying to just explain to her like, no, no, no. The ice used to be over there. It's an, uh, it's not really, it's very hard to fathom because the glacier is so big as it is to, to try and picture that it was twice that big just 20 years ago. Um, it's, it's astonishing. Yeah. When you're in a glacier, uh, national park in Montana, they will remind you that like, you know, eight to 14 years from now, there'll be zero glaciers in national in glacier national park. And we will need to, uh, rename it. Uh, and, and when you're there, like you, you can tell it's like, it's a rugged, you can just barely see some little lips of little glaciers in some upper valleys. And, and you see photos from the sixties and they're everywhere. So it's happening. So let me see. We got, we got the big mountain, we got glaciers, we got the river, we got bears. Is there anything else I'm missing? Well, so if you, if you've got a car, if you're like willing to venture out, there are a lot of things you can drive to, right? You can drive down to Homer, which is this uh, kind of a groovy little hippie town that's called the end of the road. It's like the the uh, the furthest you can drive. The road up to, to Prudhoe Bay. It seems stupid, right? It's it pr- is stupid. Okay. And, and until really recently, it was closed. It was um, a road. It was called the Hall Road. It was just for oil companies. Yeah. It was not a thing that you could just tourist up there. Um, and you've probably uh, read like travel diaries of rugged motorcycle dudes that you yeah. know do it every summer. Those are great to see online, but uh, you could tell the last, you know, the last uh, two pages of their thirty-page thing is just like, wow, that was just a grind. You know, from everything past Fairbanks is just terrible and terrible and and super dangerous. I've read a couple of them where the guys said, um, you know, do not attempt this unless you're so comfortable on a motorcycle that you can kind of routinely be in a situation where there are 60 seconds that you are completely out of control. (laughs) Right. It's like some sort of like, there's a, there's a clay mud there. You might be going 60 miles an hour. You cannot stop for a while. You know, there's gravel, there's trucks like it's, yeah, yeah, it sounds pretty gnarly and it sounds kind of dumb. So I, I can see Homer on the map here. That seems like the end of it. Yeah, Homer's really, and it's a fun town. It's like a rowdy little, uh, little hippie seaport town that's absolutely worth visiting. Um, it's just, it's hilarious and great. Uh, 
if you drive up to Talkeetna, which is north of Anchorage quite a ways, it's also like a really fun, that's the, that's the town that's the, that's the jumping off point for climbers that are going to, to do the mountain. Mm -hmm. So in the summer, it's a bustling hub of activity, people from around the world, but it's not a tourist scene because they're all busy. Like they're getting ready to go try and summit this mountain and you'll find little crew of like eight Japanese climbers. And then there'll be a bunch of climbers from, uh, from Peru and you're, and they're just all like really focused, but it's a hot, a hub of activity there. There are, uh, planes coming and going all the time. But Talkeetan itself is like groovy little hippie town. They have a bluegrass festival every summer. That's worth visiting. Uh, And then, you know, you can do the kind of thing where, I mean, you can drive to Valdez, which is interesting, but it's the drive is maybe more interesting than the uh, place. Well, you go by the glaciers on the way, it looks like. You you do, and, and you can go, I mean, you get out there, there's a town really far out, uh, on that road, there's, you go through the town of chicken and then you get to, uh, McCarthy, which is a, a, a giant old mine that's abandoned. And it's this beautiful, like red painted mine buildings kind of going up the side of the mountain. It's, uh, it's super duper worth a trip, but it's a long, it's a long drive. But Alaska has more private small planes than anywhere in the world. And it's a major, major part of how Alaskans think and how they get around. So if you're up there and you really want to like do something, don't be afraid to go find one of the 400 bush pilots who are just kind of sitting around leaning on their airplanes. I mean, when I was a kid, it really was like that. You'd go down to, um, you know, you'd go out to Merrill Field or you'd go down to Spinard Lake and there's just guys like sitting on their, sitting on the, the strut of their airplane and you drive up and you're like, Hey man, how much to, how much to go to Dillingham? And the guy'd be like, no, 300 bucks. And you're like, well, the guy down there says 275. He's like, all right, I'll do it for 275. <laughs> and you know, it's just like, it's like hailing a, uh, a cab in Athens. <laughs> you just make a deal with somebody. I felt that way in uh, uh, Vancouver, Victoria. People, um, they are—they love the seaplane. They have no problems. Yeah. Seaplane seems like the most dangerous thing in the world to me. It just feels like a landing. You hit a wave, it pops the pr- prop, and everything's gone. But they're like, "Oh yeah, hundred bucks. Like it's no big deal. You can just go to Victoria today, this afternoon, one hour. Like, boom. yeah, yeah." <laughs> And it's and it's so much that way up there that it's um, if you do it. It wouldn't be if you didn't know it, right? You could land in Anchorage, you could do the tours, you could see all the things. I'd be like, I saw Alaska, but all you have to do is look at a map and see where the roads go. The roads don't really go very many places. And if you get inside the mentality of a, of an Alaskan, it's like, right, you're going to have to take a plane if you want to go anywhere. And so you get, I would just go to any one of these little guys. And I'm sure, I'm sure these days there are Yelp reviews for all of them back in the, back in the day, it was like, you kind of judged them on how, how, uh, well, yeah, just what their mustache looked like. Like, (laughs) I don't know. That mustache doesn't look like it's, he hasn't run a brush through it. Anchorage to Valdez is 300 miles in five and a half hours. And you know, as the crow flies, man, is that a hundred miles maybe at tops? Like, 
I could see that being like a one hour flight or two hour flight. Yeah, it's uh, and and the flight from Anchorage to Valdez is amazing. It's beautiful. I mean, almost any time you get in an airplane up there, you're going to be blown away in seconds because you just can't uh, you can't fathom the scope, just the scope. If you had if you had directly west from Anchorage, you are immediately in pure wilderness, and you will remain in pure wilderness until you arrive in Kiev. <laughs> I mean, it's like there is nothing anymore, right? For, to the to to the west of Anchorage, there's just nothing, and there won't there's nothing until you get to to yeah Japan. So the the bush pilot tip is just go into the wilderness, check it out, come up with I, some. I mean, there are lots of things you can do. You can you can book uh you can book a lodge somewhere, and I mean, your fishing your fish loving wife is going to have fifty places she wants to go with her family. Um, because there are all these lodges where you fly out there and the fishing is just insane and everybody loses their mind. <laughs> but if you don't care about fishing, um, there are just as many lodges that, I mean, or even just going to that lodge and, and basking in it will be astonishing. And then you can, you can really get adventurous and go to places like King Salmon or Dillingham or Bethel, uh, where it's a native town. And so you are, you know, you arrive and you are, you're in an utter, utterly different culture that you weren't aware existed. And it's, um, it's a, it's a completely kind of mind blowing destabilizing. It's not a reservation. It's not like, um, it's not like driving across the American Southwest and you're like, Oh, we're on the reservation now. Like 80% of Alaska is, it's not, believe me, it's not untouched or unspoiled. There's none of that romantic, um, the romantic sense of like Native Americans as these, uh, these noble, uh, spiritual sort of untouched people. Like everybody in Alaska is scrambling all the time trying to figure out what to do. Uh, but you're in a, you're in a, you're, you'll, you're, you're in a place where you're in the minority and the culture is not, it's just not readily evident what the rules are or what the, um, like in Dillingham, you're, you're kind of on your own. Uh, and that is, that is a, 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 an extraordinary experience. And those places are phenomenal. Like they're, they're, um, they're, they're really, really, really far away from what you know. They're super far away from San Francisco, far away from what I know. Wow. Um, so that's directly west, it looks like. Yep. Yep. And that's um, and down there, that's actually where the Yukon River empties out into into the ocean. So. So it's a there's a there's a kind of like huge uh, delta down there. But then you go a little bit further up and you're talking about like Nome. Uh, if you, if you're willing to, uh, to, to buy a plane ticket and fly to Nome, you're going to have an experience that very few people in the world will ever have. And you could even one up those people and go to Kotzebue, which is like, you might, <laughs> you might as well be going to Mars, but it is, oh, a, you yeah, know. there it is. Wow. So that's uh, those places. And then the, not to neglect 
inland Alaska either. Like I, I used to work at a gold mine at Circle Hot Springs, which is northeast of Fairbanks quite a ways. And it's called Circle Hot Springs because it's on the Arctic Circle. And in the summer, I mean, in late summer, those that is one of the places where the mosquitoes will, will carry you away. But in the early part of the year, like 4th of July in, in, in Circle is, is really fun. It's like they get the fire truck out and some local gold miners put clown noses on. And, and it's like, it's like a 4th of July parade that you might've seen in the 1920s. So what, what, uh, I'm curious, this isn't travel related, but what's the, what is the relationship between native people and, uh, you know, I guess American white Alaskans, uh, what's it like? Uh, I'm used to the Southwest where, you know, there's a lot of racism and, uh, people aren't really um respected on reservations and then i've been to places like new zealand where um you know maori tribes are sort of equals and like respected and seen as uh you know treated pretty well well so alaska is big enough that there are multiple there there are like whole different um not just tribes but whole different races of native americans uh, in the center of the state, there are Athabascan Indians who are, you know, like Indians like we would think of in the continental United States uh, or like the, the, you know, the First Nations of Canada. Mm-hmm. But then on the coastal side of things, there are what we, uh, I guess, formerly called Eskimos. Now you, you refer to them more, you know, as Inuits or or uh, Aleuts or, you know, by their, by their actual sort of population grouping rather than generally as Eskimos. Right. But they're completely, uh, like separate, like, uh, like racial denotation. They're related to, uh, Asian South Pacific sort of the, the people of, um, well, and, and, and they go all the, uh, the, those populations go on the water all the way across Canada and they're in Greenland. I mean, that, that's that, uh, separate group of people. And they were not very respected in the early days of the state. And even when I was growing up, the cultures, they didn't clash so much as you know, native cultures just weren't very appreciated by the white, uh, American population. And, and partly, you know, one of the interesting things I learned growing up there was that because those, um, because those cultures were formed in places where for six months out of the year, they were all just sort of trapped together in a very small shelter. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're not super chatty. In the, within their own home, like there's not that much to say over time. Like maybe in, in October, you still have, you're still telling stories about, uh, what happened that summer. But by February, you've just run out of things to say. So from their standpoint, we babble, we're just babblers. <laughs> and if you, you know, if you're in a, a native home, it, they're, they're very comfortable with silence. And they feel like we are just, why the, why will we not shut up? You know, uh, but from, from the white standpoint, looking there, you have this sense, uh, or at least the prejudice always was, they don't have anything to say. Hmm. 
because that you know you'll you'll you'd be talking to a native guy and explaining something to him and he'd just be watching you and you'd be like Is, did you get it are you what do you think about that and he's like yeah i mean i i heard you <laughs> and you're like well yeah but i mean what's your you know like get in there jump in there what do you got to say and he's like well, I mean, what do I, what do you mean? What do I have to, I mean, like just like a, a, a culture gap around the idea of how much you talk, but the difference between the native Alaskans and, um, and native Americans and the continental U S is, uh, something that happened in the 1970s called the Alaskan native claims act, where this, this, huge amount of land that was held by the federal government. Uh, the, uh, the native people of Alaska organized and said, you don't just get to take all the land. We've seen this. You've, we've seen you do this before United States of America. Uh, you like we're wised up to your game. You don't just get to come in and like make some fake treaties with us and then just take it all. You're going to have to give us, um, parts of Alaska. And it was like a huge proposition throughout the 1960s and 70s how this was going to break down. And what ended up happening was that different tribal uh, entities formed corporations, native corporations. And those corporations, which were wholly owned by the by the tribe, by the population, each member of the, of the tribe was a co-owner of the corporation. Those corporations were given huge tracts of land, millions and millions of acres. And then the corporation was, you know, charged with uh, running it however they saw fit. So the native corporations, some of them have become incredible business operations. Uh, I have a good friend who's the lawyer for the Chenega Corporation, and they have become uh, like government contractors who are, I think they were, they're running Guantanamo Bay now. Wow. Like they're, they turned their, their corporation and their land and the money that, that it produced into like a major um, services company. Uh, other corporations haven't fared as well. But there's um, there's a whole different relationship between the government and the white population and the native population up there because because of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. So the government kind of uh, doesn't seem like it has the same antagonistic relationship with like reservations because they sort of mobilize themselves. Like native natives became corporations which sort of were seen like had to be treated as you know i don't know better i guess by the government well and they had they owned the land like they had the money and it wasn't it's not a thing of like oh we found this land in oklahoma that nobody wants you can live there oh we found oil on that land too bad please leave (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna violate every treaty we signed with you uh no this is like there's a lot of um there's a lot of mineral wealth there's a lot of material wealth in that land and, um, you know, they secured for themselves a, um, a real ownership stake in the, in what would become a sort of the modern sense of what land was rather than go from a place where 
hey, what do you mean everybody owns the land collectively to, oh, I guess everybody owns the land except us. Yeah. Like they, they, uh, they made that switch. But, the, but it's, a, it's a big question. How do you develop – how do you bring development to Kotzebue, which was always a place that survived from the ocean and hunted whale and, and um, you know, had a real cycle of life up there? Like how do you bring television and, and uh, you know, and like snowmobiles to there – and not radically change the way business is done. And the fact is you can't, you can't, um, as soon as you have a, an engine on your boat, it changes the whole relationship with, with whaling and with your, the, the whole culture, right? But you, but you don't want to lose that culture. You want to preserve it somehow at the same time. And so the state of Alaska is still convulsed by those questions, uh, and will be, I think for generations. But it's it's fascinating though to to be a part of. <laughs> so uh, let me see. What do we, if, let's wrap it up. But like mm -hmm. May June is good. July Fourth is a good barrier or high point. Uh, inland stuff is good to see. There are glacier stuff to see. There's ocean stuff. Bears on Kodiak Island are rad. Uh, bush pilots can take you to fishing villages or uh, you know probably a glacier in the summer and come back down. Uh, and what else, is there anything else we're missing here? That sounds well, like a pretty is. good week. There is. And that is if you are uh, adventurous, the other great time to visit is in February. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> well, uh, in February every year, there's a festival called the fur rendezvous which was the traditional festival when all the trappers from all across Alaska all converge on Anchorage to trade their fur. And they come in with their year's worth of fur, big, huge bundles of fox and beaver and, and uh, all these pelts. And then they trade those fur to furriers from around the world for money and the gold and there's gold dust being, tr you know, thrown around. And it's a, it was always, and even when I was young, a wild, wild, wild time because and those this are, still exists a little bit because I know when I fly on Alaska airlines, it's the only place on earth. I get a, an ad for a family of four covered in fur. Uh, <laughs> Come to our furrier and yeah, get, get suited up. David Green, master furrier, the only furrier you need to know. My dad was really pretty close friends with Perry Green. And I used to, we would go to the, we'd go to Perry's fur shops and, um, and, you know, go behind the scenes and watch them making fur coats. So what is the fur festival like nowadays? So fur rendezvous. So when I was a kid, right, you would still, uh, it was still, crazy wild west and listen if you're a trapper or a gold panner you're not a normal person <laughs> you know like you're a hermit with a hermit a, job you're a crazy hermit whose job is to like go trap wild animals and kill them and skin them and <laughs> not talk to humans you're a nut yeah right and so they all come to anchorage at the same time and <laughs> everybody up there is a nut already so for rendezvous is a nutty nutty time and that's right when the iditarod uh, sled dog race happens. Right. And so for the week of, for rendezvous, 
The Iditarod is the long distance, you know, endurance sled race all the way to Nome. But there are also like sprints or sled dog races that just go around the city of Anchorage. Mm -hmm. And so all day long, right in the middle of town, 4th Avenue, they're just setting up sled dog, uh, you know, like teams and starting them off on this on this race. And so, I mean, if you've ever seen a sled dog team like leap off of the starting line, it's a wonderful experience. And and they're racing dogs and sleds all day, every day. But they also do all kinds of things like um, the, there's like the Malamute dog pull where it's basically a tractor pull except with giant dogs. <laughs> there are um, they build an ice castle downtown and put um, amusement. There's an amusement park there and you go and ride the ride the rides in the freezing cold. Uh, there's an outhouse race where teams build <laughs> outhouses and then put them on skis and race them. Sure. Put a guy in the outhouse and set him down. Uh, but also, and then there are dances and parties and and the town just rages during Fur Rendezvous. And it's, you know, it's Alaska at its most wintertime extreme. So if you want to see the Northern Lights, that would be the week to go. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's not guaranteed, but you have as good a chance as any. Uh, and you're just in a place where it's just biting cold, but it doesn't slow anybody down. They just put on their heavy jacket and they go out and and party in the streets. Wow, it's still there. It is Rondi. Yep, Rondi fur Rondi. Wow, and it, and it's fun. I mean, I don't know if they do it anymore. They used to block off all the streets downtown and and have car races where they just they pounded <laughs> nails through the tires. Oh yeah, and. Uh, basically ice race except it's in the center of town i don't think they do that anymore <laughs> seems a little dangerous i think they had too many big crashes but that was definitely a thing wow anyway so it's 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 way more of a of a uh, it's way more radical to go in the winter but it's the it's the flip side of the coin and if you love it up there in the winter um then you know maybe you're gonna maybe you're the, the type of person that wants to live in alaska that's a pretty good place to stop. <laughs> no big zinger, but thanks. <laughs> thanks for everything. Uh, this is more than I ever wanted to know about Alaska. Uh, I know. I'm going to have to go twice now. I'm going to have to go in the summer. I'm going to try the winter. I the, agree. The Rondi site looks pretty cool. I agree. I agree. Thanks again to Fireside.fm, the uh, podcast host for this show. And uh, just a great simple to use uh, app for podcasting if you're into it check it out at fireside fm thanks